Lord, thank you for this morning. You have already fed us, Lord, with your word and reminded us of our baptisms. Lord, we are yours. You've claimed us in those waters, and I pray that you will seal our minds and our hearts to that memory and let us walk, Lord, by your grace in the reality of our baptisms into Jesus. And Lord, during this particular season in the life of the church, we're confident to say that you are that you are alive, that you're risen, you're risen indeed. And I pray that in our time this morning, short as it is, that you would let us get some sense of the significance of your exaltation, that you have risen, Lord, and risen to the right hand of the Father, and there you remain even now, uh, interceding for us by the Spirit to the Father. And I pray, Lord, that today you would let our hearts and our minds be open to that, that it would shape our understanding of you and our understanding of ourselves. So, Lord, if any of that happens this morning, we know that it will be because of your own presence and your own grace. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, y'all. Come on in. You're in the bad section again, I'm afraid. I would love to... to, to, um, say that this morning is going to be coherent, uh, but I, I, I don't think that, that it is. Um, so a few, um, my, my general thought this morning with you is to think about some of the major implications of Jesus' exaltation, his resurrection. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago, if you remember on Palm Sunday, uh, for those of you who are here, we talked about Jesus' humiliation. Um, two aspects of Jesus' person and his work. He um, humbled himself, that is, God took on human flesh. He became what he was not, so that we could become what we are not. So we talked about that with, with a special focus on, on an exposition of Isaiah 53. And um, today I'd like to talk in a little bit more of a hodgepodge way about the significance of his exaltation, that is, Jesus, fully God, fully man, now exalts our own humanity to the, to the Father, and brings humanity, redeemed humanity, into the very life of God. I mean, that, that's what I want to think about with you and the significance of that, of that reality. So I'll back up and get into that a little bit. I, I was a graduate student, um, it was hard to believe now, sort of a decade ago, uh, and I was in a graduate seminar in, uh, in St. Andrew's, Scotland, where we happened to be. And this was during the time, uh, and some of you may remember this, especially you History Channel watchers, um, so, uh, they, they discovered an ossuary, a little crypt, uh, with, uh, that they thought, um, and a lot of scholars were really convinced of this, that the ossuary said, uh, James, the, the brother of Jesus, in, in, they, in, in Aramaic. And so they were pretty sure that that was an off, I think it's been proved to be bogus now, but at that point in time it was a big deal, it was on display in the U.S., people were going to see it. And one of my own um, professors at the university I attended, Richard Balkum is his name, uh, did a seminar on this James Ossuary. He was actually, and he's a very careful um, British, typically British New Testament scholar, but 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 he um, he was excited about this, and so we did a seminar on this. We were all sitting around, and I didn't know what he was talking about, but we were listening, and and uh, and he's talking about the Aramaic and why he thought this was the real deal, and and in the middle of his of his um, his uh, his lecture, he said to our small table, and it's very likely that this ossuary contains the bones of Jesus. Now he meant to say James. 
But he said Jesus, and in, in its classic sort of Richard Balkum style, he stopped and cocked his head and he said, Oh, I meant to say the bones of, Jew, of James. If we find the bones of Jesus, those are the bones we don't want to find. Right. <laughs> Similarly, um, if you can follow the History Channel, there was a big event that happened, I don't know, two, three, four years ago, where they thought they found uh, these two um, archaeologists, thought they had found... Um, uh, the, the family grave of Jesus. Do you remember this one? Did you watch that? Um, uh, it, one, one fellow who was responding to it, he's not really a believer, the fellow resp- replied to it saying that he called it archaeoporn. That's what he called it. It was something good. Um, but there was this big to-do on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, and then afterward, Ted Koppel um, moderated a debate. Do any of you remember this? I, I thought this was fascinating. So here's Ted Koppel, and you have the two guys who thought for sure this was the Jesus family tomb, with Jesus' tomb probably in there, and his bones in there as well. And then you had three um, sort of uh, detractors who were on the other side. And Koppel moderated this in, in a very brilliant way. And um, there was a Catholic priest there. There was someone else there, I can't remember. And then an evangelical New Testament scholar and something was said to the effect, um, I think it was actually the Catholic priest said something to the effect, at the end of the day, if we find Jesus' spleen or a femur, um, it's not really going to be troubling to our faith. And uh, the evangelical was there, you could, I saw him, I, I, we've, we've had this guy at Beeson before, D- Daryl Bach is his name, he began to just squirm, I just knew it was coming out. And he, he said, well actually... Um, if we find Jesus' spleen uh, or his femur, um, that's really bad news uh, for Christians around the world. Um, the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection, is important for multiple reasons. But one of the primary reasons that it's important is because, let's just put it out there from a Pauline perspective, our salvation is on the line because of it. If Jesus is not raised bodily, If His true humanity has not been raised to the Father now, so that Jesus right now, and I want us to sort of think about this and try to just conceptualize it on some frame. If Jesus right now is not corpuscular, uh, bodily, if He doesn't have a body right now, then our salvation or the redemption of humanity is not real. I mean, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to go there again before the day's over, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most miserable. Um, if I were Eugene Peterson and I'm translating that into the message, I'd probably translate that this way. If Jesus is not really alive, let's all go to Vegas, right? That's what kind of, um, why? Because this is, this is the, whole, the whole shooting match. Another... Um, uh, Scholar who I like to follow, a fellow named Hans Frey, a German scholar, ended up teaching up at Yale for a while. Hans Frey wrote a very interesting book um, that really was a, one of those DOA books, Dead on Arrival. Right? It just didn't have a huge impact on the field. But it was a book entitled The Identity of Jesus. And it's actually been quite formative for me and my own understanding and framing of how to understand Jesus and his person and his work, especially as it relates to the Gospels. I mean, for example, for Fry, if we want to know what Jesus thought, what Jesus' aims and intentions were and are, 
then we do so not necessarily by reconstructing the world out of which Jesus came, but by reading closely the fourfold Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by attending closely to the canonical text itself and seeing there what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Because when we see what Jesus said and we see what Jesus did, we begin to get some kind of entrance and purchase on his own self-understanding. So when we see Jesus, for example, forgiving sins, when we see Jesus in the bow of a boat telling the storm to be still and it listens to him, when Jesus does those things, he's embodying his own identity as Yahweh as the God of Israel, enfleshed in human form amidst Israel's history and its, its life. Um, so, uh, in this reflection on Jesus and His aims and intentions, Fry goes on to say, if we look closely at the biblical narrative, if we look closely at what Jesus claims about Himself, I am. Um, I force my children during Holy Week, this is actually my wife, um, she, it, we would have no events in our home if it weren't for my wife. She's the thoughtful one. Uh, we, we, we made our poor kids watch Franco Zeffirelli's four-hour Jesus of Nazareth. You know the one I'm talking about? There is no better Jesus movie than Zeffirelli. Do you know this one? Um, uh, uh, the, I, apparently, if this is false and I'm lying to you right now, I'm sorry. Um, but apparently the fellow who played Jesus dies like, Six months after the movie's made, and it, it's it's a it's a good one. Um, so I forced my children to watch this, and uh, we they actually got rather moved by it. I, I was surprised, um, we, and we followed it during the week. You know, so we got to Good Friday, and we watched Gethsemane, and we I mean Monday Thursday we watched Gethsemane, and then we moved into Good Friday, and um, so you remember the scene, right? That Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying. His disciples are falling asleep. Um, and then uh, the guards come, Judas comes, betrays him with a kiss. But there's a line in one of the Gospels where Jesus says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, we, it's, it's one of these sort of interesting one-liners in the Bible that then we just move on from. But it's, he says, I am. And do you remember what that Gospel says? And then they all fell back. So it's like, in other words, um, tectonic. Tectonic plates shifted in, in that garden. Uh, universal plates shifted that forced these people to fall back under the declaration that came from Jesus' lips that He is. I am. There's other weird passages too that we often forget. Um, what one of my colleagues at Beeson calls the thriller passage um, in Matthew. Um, when all the dead people come out and sort of visit one another. Like, that's another... Let's just move right over that one, right, and move on. Um, the, 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 the Greek Orthodox love that in their icons, by the way. You'll see this in, in the iconography of the Orthodox Church where you'll have the crucifixion and you'll have people coming out of their tombs. I mean, it's, it's, it's the thriller passage. I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but there it is. Um, so here you have Jesus saying, I am, and it forces them back. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. I mean, this is a claim about Jesus' own understanding about his identity. And his identity is, I am. I am. You remember the scene, don't you, in Exodus chapter 3, the famous scene where Moses has an encounter with Yahweh. 
He sees that bush that's burning. It's a favorite story in our home. The bush that's burning but not consumed. And he walks up to that bush and he has an encounter with God. And God, Moses asks God to reveal his name, which we've talked enough in this class here to know the significance that the revelation of the divine name is the revelation of God's own character. And what does God say? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. My identity, my person, will be unveiled for you, Moses, in my redemptive movement toward my people. Do you want to know who I am? I am who I will be. I am. I exist, and my being is wrapped up in the redemption of humanity, in the redemption of my people. I mean, this is why Jesus in John chapter 17, the night before he dies, prays that high priestly prayer, which I wanted to get to a little bit this morning, but he prays that high priestly prayer. Let me frame it for you this way. The last act that Jesus does before his obedience on our account moves from being active to passive. He lives his life for us and then he dies our death for us. His active and his passive obedience. The last act in John's Gospel that Jesus does in his life of active obedience for you and for me is that he prays. And he prays for you and for me. The last thing that Jesus does is he, is he prays. And one of the things that he prays is, Father, I'm going to reveal to them your name. This, well, this is strange. Of course they knew the name. The four letters of Hebrew, right? Yahweh. Or the protected name, Adonai. Or just saying the name. But they knew the name of the Lord. So what is Jesus saying there? It's not a revelation of the name itself. Some sort of morphological unit. It's the revelation of the character of God's name. It's like Exodus 3 all over again. I'm going to let them know who you really are when I unveil your name to them. And where does he do it? He does it on his way to the, to the cross. That's where we see Jesus. That's where we see God in his mercy and his severity unveiled for us in its fullness. So when Jesus says, I am when he makes a claim about his own identity that's wrapped up in the very life of God itself, what we begin to see, and again, I'm leaning on Fry here, but what we begin to see is the resurrection should not surprise us. It is a necessity in the life of Jesus. His very identity is that he is, I am. He exists. He lives He reigns. So for Jesus to bust forth from the tomb in His exaltation, in His resurrection, the whole Gospel narratives build for us a kind of expectation that it had to be this way. Look at who He claimed to be. Death could not hold Him because He is. He is the the I Am. So when we think about Jesus and His resurrection, We think about Jesus and time as we move forward in the church calendar to the ascension, where he brings humanity into the very life of God itself. I want to think about a few things for you with that as that pertains to you and to me. Number one, and if you have Bibles or iPhones, we can look at this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read this to you here. Oh, and I did want to say one other thing about, um, uh, as by way of introduction. 
In Ephesians 1, 10 to 11, and don't worry, um, I only have 15 points, so we'll be fine. Um, in Ephesians 1, 10 to 11, it claims there that Jesus sums up all things in Himself. This has to do with His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His eventual return. He sums up all things in Himself. Um, the early church fathers had a term they liked to slap onto this. And it was the term recapitulation. Jesus recapitulated all things in Himself. All things. If you remember in the Colossians class we did here um, a month or so ago, we talked about Jesus in Colossians and said, basically our tagline was, whatever your view of Jesus is, it's not big enough. That was our tagline. Ephesians would make the very similar claim. He sums up all things in Himself. The whole reality of the created order. The whole reality of humanity and what humanity is to be and to do in the image of God as divine image bearers. Jesus sums all of that up in His own self, in Him. So that when Paul says things like, you are in Christ, you are in Him, You have by faith been brought into that very recapitulation of Jesus of all things in Himself. Which demands, I think for you and for me, to look away from ourselves to the object of our faith who is Jesus, who has brought the whole of of reality into Himself and redeemed it. All of it. So Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, tells us and links us to the reality that because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the down payment of the resurrection. His exaltation tells us that life has not been swallowed up by death. Remember, He is. His very nature, His very being, demands that He exists The tomb could not hold Him. The stone had to be broken through. Why? Because He is. And because He's resurrected, because He is raised to the Father, the Apostle Paul tells us that our resurrection is sure indeed because of that. Putting it in other terms, we live in the age of the resurrection of the dead right now. So that if Paul walked in here and sat down, which would be fun. And we asked him, and we said, Paul, tell us. Give us your eschatology, right? Your doctrine of the end times. When will the resurrection of the dead be? Paul would say, Jesus is raised from the dead. You are in the age of the resurrection now. Our final line in our creed that we confess week in and week out here, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, all of that, when we say that, its substance is located in the fact that Jesus is really risen from the dead. And because He's risen, because He's the first fruits of the resurrection, because He demanded to be, we can therefore as well have full confidence and hope that our lives in Him are demanded to be as well. That death is not the final word, that life is. It doesn't mean that death doesn't have its blow now. But death is not of the final word. The classic illustration 
of this is told. Um, Donald Barnhouse, who was a, a Presbyterian minister of the middle part of the um, 20th century, Barnhouse's wife died tragically, and they were leaving uh, the funeral um, at the graveside, and his daughter was in the car with them. And he, somehow she asked about the death and the resurrection, and, and a truck came by and cast a shadow over them. And he said to his daughter, um, what's better, getting hit by the shadow or getting hit by the truck? Right. I mean, we still live under the shadow and the reality of death. We still go to the cemetery. We go there. But we go there in the full hope that though this shadow is real and dark, it's not the truck. It's not. Because when we go to the cross, and when we, when we are reminded of this at the Eucharist every other week here, when we're reminded of that and we taste and feed on Jesus, there we have for us, communicated to us, the full and sure reality that Jesus took death and He defeated it and He conquered it. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's one. Second thing is we're now assured that Jesus as God and as man stands as our mediator to the Father. Um, I, I, uh, I've told you the story. And my, if my, wife, my wife is a good um, uh, gauge for me. She's like, you know, you, you say a lot of things over and over again. I'm like, well... <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, sorry. I'm, become, I'm becoming my father already. Um, but, uh, you know, I've told you the story ad nauseum about this, the youth group song that my teens used to sing. That, um, you know, I want to touch you. I want to see you. And, and I would always kind of tease my wife. I, I, you know, they can have all the touching and the seeing they'd like. I, I prefer my Christianity mediated, <laughs> right? Um, uh, because no mediation, you're gone, right? It's over. Um, and this is what's so important, I think, when it comes to the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus now, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, stands as the only mediator between God and man. And listen to the way that Paul phrases this. The only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. His exaltation as a man means, again, that your identity, who you are, is not primarily the person sitting in this chair right now. That your identity from a Bible perspective is primarily conceived of those who are safe and in Him because of His humanity. My humanity finds its significance not from trying to figure out what it means to be human, but by taking a long and hard look at Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is the humanizing human. And as that person, He stands to the Father, by the Spirit, in ever-Trinitarian communication, and He mediates your salvation. Oh, to put it in John 17 language, which I believe, my own, my own sense, is that John 17, the high priest of the prayer, is not just an indication of what Jesus did the night before He died, but is also an ongoing revelatory uh, text for us about what Jesus does now as our high priest. And what Jesus does now as a man, fully God, fully man, is He prays for you. He intercedes for you. His resurrection assures us and assures you that those prayers are effective. I yanked a book off my shelf this morning, kind of getting some thoughts together. I yanked a book off of my shelf, and I should have brought it and read you the quote because I'm going to botch it. But basically, this Eastern Orthodox theologian was arguing 
that when Jesus prays for us, that what He does is He also takes our prayers, your prayers and my prayers, receives them into His very life, and by the Spirit prays to the Father um, what really we should be praying. In other words, Jesus cleans it up for us. Which is great news. Right? Well, what does Romans 8 say? I mean, at the end of the day, we're not really even sure what to pray for. This is this groaning that comes out. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a pious world, and I'm grateful for my pious upbringing. Um, though I might have a twitch, but I'm great. No, I'm joking. Um, I grew up in a very pious world, and I can remember even being on staff at a church where some younger Christians were around some older Christians in prayer meetings. And now, I'm not going to be very nuanced here, so brace yourself. But the younger Christians were kind of blown away by the finesse and the profundity of these older Christians' prayers. Now, part of that is, frankly, the nature of lived life, and that's a good thing. We need to be around older Christians who've been praying longer. Amen. But I also think that kind of underneath some of this was a recognition that um, the quality of our prayers are in some sense measured by our ability to turn a phrase and to maybe create a moment. I don't know. I don't want to read into that too much. But what has given me a big bear hug in my prayer life, because I know what it's, that, that those feelings are like. I mean, if you want to start feeling guilty, let's talk about prayer, right? <laughs> now, what I know about in my prayer life, the big bear hug that's come to me from the recognition of Jesus' mediatorial role in my life as my high priest is that really I can pray whatever I want to to Him. Because by His grace, He takes it. And by the Spirit, He cleans it up. And then He presents it to the Father on our account. It's why it's not a bad thing, frankly, for a lot of our prayers to be marked by this addendum. Jesus, please pray for us. Please intercede for us. Please remember us um, in your life before the Father. Um... Okay, we got time. Colossians, one more thing. I told you it's a bit hodgepodge. Colossians chapter 3. Because of this reality, because Jesus is raised to the Father, and in His resurrection, He assures our resurrection, He stands now as our mediator, this shapes our understanding of our own identity, of your identity, and my identity. I wanted to read this to you out of Colossians. These are some of my favorite verses in Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. I mean, this is, one, I think, one of Paul's favorite motifs. Your citizenship, your identity, is already above. It's already located in the heavenly realm. That's who you are. That's your citizenship. Now, by the way, the implications of that for our earthly lives... Because I don't think Paul is calling us here to some kind of Gnostic spirituality that's disembodied and disengaged from the real world. I don't think Paul's doing that at all. Paul's too engaged in the real world to be saying that. 
But I think what Paul is giving us here is a theological framework for how we negotiate our own existence in this world. And we negotiate our own existence in this world by recognizing that our primary citizenship is not in this world, but is already in the heavenly place. The implications of that are enormous. Enormous. I mean, even in the prayer that we sing that comes out of David's famous prayer for the dedication of the temple, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of, our, of your, thine own have we given to thee. That prayer that we pray when we give our money to the, to the Lord is deeply rooted in this, I think, Pauline reality. And that is everything in our lives comes under the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we're not allowed to bifurcate our lives, to dissect our lives, to compartmentalize our lives, to create life silos, right? This is my life. I'm thinking about this in my life right now. This is my life at Southside Baseball on Saturday. There I'm going to yell and maybe swear a little under my breath. And I'm saying I had a hard day yesterday. Um, <laughs> all right. This is my life at the baseball field. This is my life at here. This is my life. And we go on and on. Um, that's not the way in which Paul will allow us to frame our identity. It's not the way in which God is going to allow us uh, to frame our identity. Why? Because our, we've been risen with Christ. In our baptisms, right, we've been risen with Christ. In our recognition of what those baptisms are by faith, we recognize that we've been risen with Christ. We went down and we've come up in Christ. I mean, that shapes the way in which we view everything. Everything. Our work, our families, our relationships, the way in which we romance, the way in which we grieve, the way in which we die, all of it is shaped by this reality right here because Jesus is raised and exalted. And because we're in Him, and because that's our identity. It shapes everything in our lives. And, and frankly, I think the Christian life really is a continual, continual wrestling with that reality. That our lives are full and complete in Him. Can I read you something from my favorite 20th century dead man? You know who that is. Carl Bart. I can't help it. This is what he says in his Doctrine of the Reconciliation. We shall speak correctly of the faith and the love and the hope of the individual Christian only when it remains clear and constantly becomes clear that although we are dealing with our existence in Jesus Christ as our true existence, that we are therefore dealing with Him and not with us. And with us, only insofar as absolutely and exclusively with Him. In other words, this is what I think Paul is telling us in Colossians 3 and what Bart is, try is getting at here in that very obtuse, I can tell that landed real well, that quote. Um, what Bart is getting at. That our existence and coming to terms with what it means to be a Christian and to be human is only going to find its true resonance and its true goal when we recognize that all of that ultimately has to do with Him. All of it. Last thing. Last thing. Well... That was the last thing. <laughs> um, now we have some time. So let, let's bat this around. You want to fire some, some questions out? Think through some of this with me? You angry about anything? Well, 
I guess my inability to pull off the, the great commandments to love God with all my heart and my neighbors as myself, that I trust in faith that in heaven that's what I will do all the time quite perfectly. It's, it's all of those, you should say, commands that Christ gives us that are ultimate perfections that we in heaven will be able to do that. But I guess that idea of in my flesh, uh, I will be flesh in heaven, but I guess I'll be a cleaned up flesh, uh, transformed flesh. Debbie hopes so, doesn't she? <laughs> um, uh, yes. I mean, I, another way of framing this, and just uh, again, you know, we're, we're, we're wrestling with the deep matters of our Christian faith and what it means to live life, what it means to live under the umbrella of Jesus' lordship. We do live, I mean, you, you all have our Advent coffee mugs. We are similiistus et peccator. We're at the same time righteous and sinner. I mean, that's who we are. And if I can sort of frame that even within the, the notion of, of sanctification, right, our ongoing life of, of growth and holiness, that we're at the same time uh, holy and at the same time sinner. Again, if that recognizes that my holiness and, all, and my faith and my obedience is all ultimately in him. So one of the ways in which I like to think about this is maybe to invert it a little bit and to claim that whenever in God's grace, in these moments of our lives, when God does allow us to operate in the Spirit, or when we are operating in the Spirit, that that is never an achievement of human activity. It's never an achievement of human self-actualization. What it is, I believe, is a lightning flash in time of what we already fully are in Him at the final day. It's kind of a lightning flash every once in a while. And, I, and I, I, I'm, even in my own spirituality and piety, I'm, I'm trying to think through it in this way. In other words, whenever, um, whenever I respond in grace in my, in my marriage, right, and that happens, which doesn't always happen, right? Whenever I do, I realize that's a lightning flash of God's grace of what will be in full in time. It's a lightning flash. But here's what's key. That lightning flash moment, that's not a, that's not some, that's not a human self-achievement. That's, using Bart's quote here, having to do with him as well. That's him alone. And when I live in my existence as a sinner, that's a recognition now that, you know what, I need the gospel. I need the gospel again and again and again. I need to be reminded again and again and again that that fleshly existence of mine is not constitutive of my ultimate and final identity. It's not. It's a flash. It's the, that's the lightning flash of my current existence now because I live in the tension of the ages. I live there. But in the full hope that in time that will be that will be revealed in its fullness. So I, I, I get this. I mean, I get that there's a real tension on how to talk about our own lives now and our role as human agents in that. Um, and I don't want to diminish that. I think we're called to think and to do and to be something. But I think what we're called to think and be and do is to think and be and do what you already are. In other words, I'm not achieving something. I'm called to be and do what I already am and are in Jesus. And when that happens, it's a lightning flash of, of a future reality. It's also, frankly, why I'm so grateful for our liturgy. I, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I, mean, I get Every week, I get to come back to church and confess my sins to Jesus. With all of you, right? I get to do it on my knees. In that moment of silence, I confess my sins. Again and again, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And then, let us praise you with our lips and our lives. We pray that too in our prayer book.
Don. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to form this question correctly the way I want to, but you're talking about Jesus mediating and talking about this high priest declare in John 17. Um, he, he said that this, you like to look at this as an ongoing revelatory text. Is that right? Um, in 6 through about 19, um, this particular Bible I have, have a heading that's put there. It says, A Prayer for the Disciples. I have read this for years, uh, reading it with that thinking and, and wishing that that was the prayer that I was getting. It wasn't just for them, it's for me. So is that a, a, a hill too far? Take what you said and say that this, this is not about this was simply those disciples in that place and time when he, when he says, you know, for them that they may have my joy um, and that, um, that uh, keep them in my name. I is it a hill too far? Well, a couple of things. I mean, this is it's an interpretive difficulty, the issue that I just stepped into. Um, But, I mean, if you read on in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says in the third part, and I not only pray for these, but for those who believe on account of their word. So I do think there is something um, very particular and special in the divine economy about those apostles. I mean, think about even in our creeds, the apostles and the prophets. That's just our language for really the canonical deposit of the Bible. So I do think there's something particular and special about them that I want to recognize I'm not a prophet and I'm not an apostle. But at the same time, I do think, and I have colleagues who disagree with me on this, right? So I I might change my mind and I don't know. Um, But I do think all throughout John's gospel, we have these double narratives, I know there's something that does record something that's historical, it's real, happened in time and space, but that also indicates something more um, than just that particular moment. For example, Jesus' language in John 3 with Nicodemus about being born of water. I mean, the church historically has read that as a baptismal text. I think rightly so, right? John chapter 6, now this is a huge controversial text, but when Jesus says, eat my flesh, eat my, drink my blood, right? Again, many of the reformers that you think might like that text for the Eucharist didn't for strange reasons. So I don't want to get into that. But I would personally, I think Jesus is making a claim there about the Eucharist. And I'd want to affirm that double reality. And I would say something very similar about John 17. That yes, this is a historical event that happened in time and space. But as so, it's symbolic, significantly symbolic of the ongoing life of God, of Jesus, in his own triune identity as he continues to pray. It's one of the few places in the Bible where we get the veil torn back and we actually get to see God talking to himself in an extended prayer. It's, it's, it's holy ground. And I think John 70 is like, take your shoes off. This is, this is a special place because we see Jesus praying. We get some one-liner prayers. And we see Jesus going off and praying all the time. But to have this long, extended discourse between God, the Son, and the Father by the Spirit, it's quite a, it's a special place. Yeah, you described that grace moment. Your life. <coughs> She's not here today, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us in our hearts want more of that. And it's not I mean, I'm old, I'm old school, you know, I'm old school on this. I mean, I think the answer to that, um, two things, Victor, you throw me under the bus here. Um, uh, the means of grace. I'm still a big believer in that. In other words, God hasn't left us to try to figure out how to grow in our faith and to be, and to grow in grace. 
preaching, the Word, the Eucharist, the sacraments. I, I believe in those ordinary means of grace that do extraordinary things in our lives. I believe in that. The other thing, too, though, is um, that wanting, and again, I'm trying to think about this in my own life, right? That wanting more of that grace, right, does not necessarily correspond to our own ability to identify it in our lives. I think that's, in other words, we, we might, we're not always aware of it. Let me give you an example of this. Matthew 25, it's a, it's a parable that scares me, right? It scares me. But here you have Jesus, the judge who separated the sheep and the goats, and he tells the goats, you never fed me, you never clothed me, you never did any of this. And, um, and they said, well, when did we do that? We didn't do it to the hungry, didn't, you didn't give it to the needy, and it goes on. And then he dismisses them. And then he goes to the sheep and he says the same thing. You know, I, I, you, you fed me, you clothed me, gave me something to drink. And what bothers me about this, but also gives me hope about that text at the same time, is they are both equally unwitting. In other words, even the sheep go, when did we do that for you? Oh, when we did that, right? I heard Haddon Robinson, who's kind of one of the prince of preachers in American evangelicalism, give a sermon when I was in seminary on that text. And um, he said, I think it's going to go something like this for me. All right? uh, I'm going to stand before the Lord, and the Lord's going to say, you fed me, or you clothed me. And I'm going to say, oh, oh, was that the year that I was you know, the president of the Evangelical Theological Society and brought a paper on homiletics and hermeneutics? And, and Jesus says to Robinson, actually, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't go to those meetings. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not there at that. Um, what I'm talking about, Haddon, is that time... Um, when you were really busy and your schedule was full, but you found out that your student's father had just died and, and you went and spent the afternoon, cleared your schedule, spent your afternoon, and, and Robinson says, I don't even remember that, Lord. Well, you might not remember it, but when you did that, you did it for me. Right? And then he goes on. So in other words, I, I think our ability to kind of chart our growth Right, we we've got it at our home. Our kids, he's four three, now he's four five. We chart our kids' growth. I don't think we do that in our spiritual life. I don't think we have any growth charts where we go. And now I'm six foot. Right, I'm a full mature. I'm eating meat as a Christian now. I just don't. I don't think that's the case. I think our ability to self-diagnose and to diagnose our own fruit um, is really probably the wrong road on that. In others, I think we'll just be surprised. Um, that's the yeah. More to say on that, but that's maybe sort of getting at it. But wouldn't grace be that moment of um, that passes all understanding when we're in our deepest pain, but we do recognize that God is with us, that uh, we find we see no way out, but we, you know, like Job sitting in the heap of ashes, we know that our Redeemer lives. And so it's not just yeah. those moments that we not necessarily take credit for, but we feel yeah. good about yeah. being good. No, I, good. no that's, a, that's a good word. That's a good word, yeah. Yeah, we're not talking here about Stoic Christianity. Um, we're talking here about a Christianity that allows into the very fabric of our existence all the complexities of being human, all of them, with the full recognition that everything that you just said is true. Yeah. Or this, yes, ma'am. The scripture that open eyes and has meant so much is when Paul says it is Christ in you mm. the hope of glory. We all fail, but he is in us, us in him and he in us. And that is the hope of glory. 
Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. We're going to let that be the final word. Let's pray. Lord, bless my friends as they depart. And Lord, I pray that you'll let us live under the reality that you are Lord and King and that you are for us because of what you've done for us. And I pray that you'll help us to be encouraged to know that even now, you know who we are, you remember our frame, you know that we're just dust, and you pray for us. In Jesus' name, amen.